You're listening to Bede, History for the Church, a conversation with Dr. Michael A.G. Hagen. Dr. Hagen serves as Professor of Church History at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, where he also serves as the Founder and Director at the Andrew Fuller Center for Baptist Studies, and is on the core faculty of Heritage Theological Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario. Join us now as we seek to see what God has done in the history of his people. In our first episode on Constantine, we looked at what Eusebius of Caesarea, the famous church historian, had to say. But here, we want to begin with the words of Socrates Scholasticus, another church historian, but perhaps less known to many Christians. Now, Constantine the emperor, having thus embraced Christianity, conducted himself as a Christian of his profession, rebuilding the churches and enriching them with splendid offerings. He also either closed or destroyed the temples of the pagans and exposed the images which were in them to popular contempt. But his colleague Licinius, holding his pagan tenets, hated Christians, and although from fear of the emperor Constantine he avoided exciting open persecution, yet he managed to plot against them covertly and at length proceeded to harass them without disguise. This persecution, however, was local, extending only to those districts where Licinius himself was. But as these and other public outrages did not long remain concealed from Constantine, finding out that the latter was indignant at his conduct, Licinius had recourse to an apology. So, Dr. Haken, last week we looked at the conversion of Constantine, but this week we want to look at, kind of like Socrates was just doing there for us, the impact of Constantine's uh, conversion to Christianity. Um, What are some of the things that we see happening within Roman society as a result of his conversion to Christianity? Yeah, almost immediately in 313, he uh, issues the Edict of Milan, which guarantees uh, religious tolerance for Christianity. Um, Christianity had been an illegal religion, the only religion that had been illegal for such a length of time in the Roman world. Um, from roughly 64 AD onwards, the Great Fire of Rome, um, granted probably up until the middle of the third century, persecution in the empire. Persecution in the empire is usually local, usually initiated by governors, not central and uh, uh, empire-wide, initiated by the emperor. But even so, there it, it was dangerous to be a Christian. How many men and women died as martyrs? We're not talking about tens of thousands, but we are talking about significant numbers. Um, Rather, maybe not hundreds of thousands, but we are significant talking about significant numbers. And all of that comes to an end. Uh, Martyrdom as a, um, really as a gift of the church, um, ends in the Roman world in 313, in one sense. Um, But then uh, Constantine also initiates a number of other uh, reforms. Crucifixion is abolished as a legal punishment, and you have to ask the question, why, why crucifixion? Um, Constantine is not committed definitely to some sort of uh, op- opposition to the death penalty. That's obvious from the way he deals with opponents who tried to stage a coup d'etat. Um, but crucifixion is eliminated as a, as a form of legal punishment. Uh, the gladiatorial games are eventually abolished in the 320s. Although there is evidence in the provinces that they continued for longer, but in the three, 320s, they're formally abolished. And they're replaced by the uh, by uh, chariot racing. Um, you've got to give the people some form of entertainment. 
Um, Cherry Racing at least doesn't formally, um, is not formally based on the actual killing of another human being for pleasure or entertainment. Um, uh, Constantine makes uh, divorce and remarriage far more difficult. Uh, Divorce and remarriage were fairly easy within the Roman world, especially for men. It might have been more difficult for women, but it, it, it becomes now very, very significantly uh, very, very difficult difficult to, to, to get divorced and then to get remarried. You can only get divorced if you're a man. If you could prove that your wife was an adulteress um, or if she were running a brothel or if she were a poisoner, that is uh, manufacturing poisons to uh, murder people. Um, uh, a woman could divorce her husband if he were uh, sexually immoral, in other words, an adulterer. Um, and uh, if he too were a poisoner, and if he were a grave robber, uh, which is, which tells you probably something about what, what a number of men are up to uh, during the night, you know, they're out there grave robbing. Um, so you have, it becomes very difficult to get divorced and remarried in this world. Again, why, why would that be? There really is an attempt at moral reform. Um, the whole area of virginity and celibacy, rather, maybe is a better way of putting it, becomes something that is prized. Uh, the Romans had never prized this because uh, in Roman law, ever since Augustus Caesar, if you were 16 of eight years of age and a woman, you were fined for not being married. And if you were 18 years of age uh, and married, but not without, without children, you were also fined. Um, likewise, men, men were a bit older. Uh, Augustine Sorry, um, Constantine does away of all this. And again, why would he do that? And surely because, I would argue, because Christianity has prized uh, celibacy and was increasingly uh, prizing celibacy in this period. Um, he shuts down some of the pagan temples and uh, temple prostitution. Um, so there are numerous um, things that he enacts. Um he enables clergy to be tax-free. Uh, the fact that United, in the United States, as in Canada, uh, clergy get a tax break, it all goes back to Constantine. Um, in fact, uh, clergy did not pay any taxes. Not only, not only did he get a tax break, he didn't pay any taxes at all. Uh, nobody had ever done this. Nobody in the Roman Empire was ever um, tax-free except for the emperor's immediate household. I mean, governments don't give up taxes. They need taxes to, to function. So this is really an extraordinary move. Um, uh, he um, makes Sunday from 321 onwards a legal holiday. Nobody could work on Sundays except for farmers during, during times of harvest and sowing and planting. In other words, uh, if you look at the legal legislation that he passes, which radically transforms Roman society on a number of levels, um, it all can be seen to have a Christian foundation. And so when I think of Constantine, I, I talk in terms of the Constantinian revolution. It is a revolution. It's a massive regi- regime change that changes. It's not just simply a change of power. Uh, the Romans were, inter- were, were, were familiar with that. Uh, they'd gone through a ton of that in the second century. So we are trying to focus in on the Antonicene period, uh, that 10-year period from the Edict of Milan, roughly 10 years from Edict of Milan um, before the council. How does this impact the structure of the church at the time? Well, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's heady. You know, it's, so, so one moment, 
and this is this is this is actually the way it was. I mean, in the in the three hundreds, the from three hundred three to three eleven, uh, bishops are being martyred, Christians are being beheaded, uh, day after day after day in public squares in the Eastern Roman Empire, and then suddenly now the emperor declares uh, the Edict of Milan, and uh, Christianity now is, is is a legal religion, and and, and it's not surprising. It, it goes to the head of some of the bishops. Um, from being a persecuted, despised minority, suddenly now Christians are being welcomed into the halls of power. Because Constantine will, will gather around him a, a coterie of bishops who basically become what we might describe as court bishops uh, as advisors. Um, when the Council of Nicaea takes place in 325, all of the participants, probably 220 or so bishops, they're all, all, all of their expenses are paid for. Uh, the Roman taxpayer, uh, th- there is some indication of, of Roman, Roman pagan Roman complaints about, you know, the state paying for all these men, some of whom are mutilated, you know, without eyes because they'd gone through persecution, without eyes, some of maybe a, a loss of a leg or an arm um, or other bodily uh, wounds, all, all being transported to, to Nicaea and paid for by the state. Um, I mean, what, what's the world coming to? You know, a few months ago, we were chopping these people's heads off. Now, now, we're, now we're putting them up uh, at taxpayers' expense. And you can see for the church, you know, it just, it just went to their, it, 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 it's clear, clear, clear for some of these men, these bishops, like Eusebius of Caesarea. I mean, the sun rose and set on, on Constantine. I mean, um, so much so that the Constantinian Empire this, the this Christian Roman Empire becomes the acme, the second acme of church history. The first is the, the appearance of our Lord. The second is the constant, the Christian Roman Empire. And after the Christian Roman Empire is gone, that's the end of the world. I mean, we we we've done it. We we've taken we've taken the empire. We won. And um, there is gloating to some degree. I I think I think you see that in Lactantius, you know, in his book, the deaths deaths of the persecutors. Um, we, 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 we know what the, we know what the story is going to say in the end. We, we, we won. And we're not talking here about revelation. Uh, we're talking here about the book of revelation. That is, we're, we're talking here about the triumph of the Christianity in the Roman empire. And no wonder many, many years later, uh, Jonathan Edwards will say, this was the greatest blow that Satan ever suffered. And Edwards, Edwards has a really positive view of Constantine. Now, I have a positive view of Constantine in the sense that I think he was a Christian, without a shadow of a doubt. But for, for Edwards, Edwards sees the Christian Roman Empire uh, in the way that many of the people in that period did, like Prudentius um, and Jerome, um, that this is, this, is, this, is the, this is the great end which, which God has been working within the empire. And now, now we are in the halls of power. And um, as I say, it's heady. And it goes to some of these men's heads. And again, you can understand why. Um, you know, one, one moment you're being persecuted and hounded and you're maybe hiding out. Next moment, the emperor is writing a letter to you and asking you to come to Constantinople to give him advice on how to run the empire. And um, the dangers of that. It's very interesting. The third temptation of Christ, you know, bow down before me and I'll give you all these, all the riches of this world and all the power of these kingdoms. When Eusebius in one of his books uh, discusses the three temptations, he glosses over that third one. 
The first two he deals at great length, and then the third one he just passes over. Because I think maybe it hit it hit home. So this being prior to the Council of Nicaea, this almost overnight change that happens for the church, how does how does a structural shift impact the theology of the church, or does it not impact it at all? Do we not see any real change? Well, it raises an identity crisis uh, at a very basic level. I mean, prior prior to the Constantinian Revolution, the church was that body of people who so loved the Lord Jesus Christ that within the, her midst were these men and women who had given their bodies to be burned or given their bodies to be to be to be eaten by wild animals in the Roman arena or given their bodies to be garroted or slain by gladiators in in public view etc cetera, etc cetera. in other words uh, the church the church understood who she was she was the church of the martyrs and the martyr's body as it were was the boundary between church and culture between church and society suddenly now that's all gone the church is now the 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 uh, the the illegally recognized entity with the empire. She's no longer being persecuted. So who is she? What does it mean to be a Christian in a world that increasingly all the powers, all the political powers, uh, all through the fourth century, all of them claim to be Christian, except for one, Julian the Apostate, three sixty one to three sixty three, who was Constantine's nephew. But the rest of them all claim to be Christians. Now, there are men like Athanasius, the great defender of the, of the Nicene Creed and the deity of Christ and Basil of Caesarea, who would say that some of these emperors, yes, they claim to be Christian, but they weren't really. But we now have a world in which the power rests in the hands of the church. And in that world, then, if you're going to get ahead, you've got to belong to the church. And the church is, is on its way to becoming coextensive with the political realm of the Roman Empire. So in that context, what does it mean to be a Christian? Um, and the church now has to wrestle with the relationship of church and state in a way that she had not had to wrestle with prior to that. Um, she now has to wrestle with the fact that uh, generals who are Christians have to command armies that kill barbarians, um, etc. Uh, there were no Christian generals prior to, to uh, Constantine. And the, the issues of what does it mean for a Christian to take up arms for the state against the enemies of the state, uh, that really isn't a question that is, is troubling a lot of people. They have an answer. I mean, it's Romans 13, which is that Christians uh, can serve in the state, but very almost none of them are because it's an illegal religion. So that's why it's often thought that Christians, you know, were pacifists in this early period prior to Constantine. Um, I would dispute that. But the the issues of of how does a Christian use political power, uh, the realities of 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 executing criminals, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, the church doesn't have to wrestle with any of that. Well, suddenly now you read you read Augustine, and Augustine is advising Christian generals like Belisarius um, or um, Maxentius. Um, on how to use their power as generals in North Africa. One of them, I think it's Max Entius, uh, tells Augustine, I, I, think, I, I think I'm going to give it all up and become a monk. And Augustine tells him, absolutely no way. You're, you're not giving it all up. You're, God's, God's put you there. You're there for a reason. And you, you're to defend you defend North Africa from the um, the vandals who had in, crossed over the Straits of Gibraltar. Um, 
whatever, and I, I'm not interested here personally in my my own convictions regarding can a Christian serve in politics? Can a Christian be a general? Can a Christian be? I'm not a pacifist, but those those are questions all besides. But suddenly now the church is facing these these issues of their their church state theology, the political theology now has enormously more questions to answer. What does it mean to be a Christian ruler? How does one live as a Christian ruler? And so you have, for instance, um, Augustine's uh, Book 14 in the City of God, parts of which are devoted really to trying to, this is this is what a Christian ruler is like, a political ruler. Well, no, nobody's talking along, hardly anybody's talking along those lines. Uh, I mean, there is stuff in origin, but there's not tons and tons of stuff because the, 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 there are no Christians with political power. And so they don't have to worry about how does a Christian exercise political power. But now suddenly that's a reality. So is this the first time that you see what some would call uh, political theology developing in the church's thought? Well, yes and no. No, I I would say no, because, I mean, you have political theology before this. Irenaeus, uh, Tertullian. I mean, Tertullian's, um, to his his, um, letter to Scapula, who was a Roman governor, uh, you you have Christians that... appealing to Roman political powers, but it's basically for religious toleration. Uh, trying to prove that Christianity is not a threat to the empire. You, you are right. If, if you mean by political theology, how do, how do Christians think theologically about the exercise of power? Well, they're not really having to think theologically about the exercise of power because it's, it's not a reality. And the idea that it might one day be a reality is it, is almost unheard of. I, I mean, you do get some Christians and Lactantius, and I just, he's, he's not long, he, he lives and flourishes not long before Constantine, and he's still active after the Constantine's accession of power. Uh, at that point, it looked like, even before Constantine became, becomes the emperor, it's quite clear that Christianity is triumphing over the persecutions. And so maybe somebody like Lactantius um, is prescient. He's able to see the handwriting on the wall, where it's going. But most Christians in the early period, the idea that one day a Christian would be emperor, um, it's unthinkable. So there, there are shifts in, in, in the, 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 the scope of political theology is broadened considerably. So you mentioned Jonathan Edwards as seeing Constantine in a relatively positive light. Um, is this the default in church history? Um, do most Christians view Constantine favorably, or are there those who dissent from this view? Yeah, there are figures also who see it in a negative light. Um, uh, John Wesley. John Wesley basically views the Constantinian Revolution as the, the, the descent of the church from an age, a golden age, to an age of iron. And um, he identifies all kinds of problems that begin when now suddenly bishops have power. They increase in temporal riches, but they lose their spiritual riches, etc. And so there, there have been the Anabaptists. The Anabaptists for the Anabaptists, the the Constantinian Revolution set in motion the entirety of the the network of relationships between church and state in the medieval period, in which basically the church became an apostate body because she was in bed with the, with the with the state. Um, so the Constantinian Revolution then is. It's reception history, um, positive for men like Eusebius, 
negative for men like uh, John Wesley. And so it's, it's divided. And even today, I mean, you, you, Timothy Barnes's arguments about the 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 authenticity of, of Constantine's conversion. Um, there are many historians. Well, there's some historians who, would, who won't buy that at all. Um, they still have share really kind of the Anabaptist suspicion. Um, and while I'm a Baptist by political theology, um, and therefore um, committed to some degree of separation of church and state, um, I do think that Constantine was a genuine, viewed himself as a genuine believer. Um, notice by saying it that way, I'm not committing myself to whether or not I know he was genuine. I don't know whether he was genuine, but everything everything screams to me that this man thought of himself as a Christian and thought that God had raised him up to, to Christianize the empire. And um, whether or not that's the case, that's another question. But um, there's no doubt that the the union of church and state that you find in the medieval period, which is assumed by the reformers, the magisterial reformers, and basically prevails in the Western world well down to the 17th and 18th centuries. And, you know, according to a, a British historian like J.C.D. Clark, is is basically the model uh, till the 1830s, the, the Reform Act of 1832. That, that model, I mean, the Constantinian model has an enormous history, 1,500 years. You still see it playing out in uh, with people like Putin and uh, Eastern Orthodox bishops uh, blessing Russian tanks as they go into the into Ukraine. Uh, that's still playing this out. Um, of course, as you know uh, very well, uh, Russia becomes uh, kind of the guarantor, a uh, third Rome. You know, after the fall of the Constantinople to the Muslims, um, Moscow becomes the kind of the the great center of, of Christianity with this kind of union of church and state where the czar is um, a Constantinian figure. And um, whereas the, the West has the Pope who is a religious figure supreme over temporal powers, the Eastern churches have the political ruler like Constantine who is the key conduit from God to the, the various nations or subject peoples. And um, you, you still see that. I mean, I, I remember seeing pictures of the Tsar in the First World War blessing the troops and uh, as they went to fight the Germans. Um, and I've seen pictures of Putin blessing tanks, um, etc., um, with Orthodox bishops. And it seems like nothing's changed in one sense in that whole world. But that 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 all of that that kind of package. Well, it goes all the way back to Constantine. So, yes, maybe in certain Western countries, the Act, the Reform Act of 1832, kind of spells the the end of the Constantinian arrangement of the union of church and state. But in certain parts of the world, um, it still prevails. Yeah, and something you and I, Doctor Aiken, have talked about before um, in some of our discussions is the concept put forward by um, the Russian Orthodox theologian Florovsky. And the uh, historian Yaroslav Pelikan, who take the position and view that uh, the uh, advent of Constantine is in many ways the Christianization of Hellenism, contrary to what uh, someone like Harnack 
uh, said, which was the Hellenization of Christianity. That's the lens that he viewed um, the history and development of Christian theology. Uh, what What is your view on that? Could you unpack that a little bit? And where do you stand on that topic? Yeah, I think I think the Constantinian Revolution is an aspect of this Christianization of the Hellenistic world. That Roman Hellenism uh, politically now is in the the political sphere of Roman Hellenism and is now Christianized. You now have a, a Christian as an emperor, and um, his Christianity is shaping the the laws that he puts into into effect. Uh, the ones that I mentioned earlier, and that's not all of them, but that's a it's a very good kind of snapshot of the way in which um, the legal system of the Roman world is Christianized, which again, as I would argue, is an aspect of the Christianization of Roman Hellenism. And uh, so I get, yeah, th- th- that's a very important question because I mean, for, 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 for John Wesley, uh, I think Wesley probably would argue that the, there is the Hellenization of Christianity that takes place in the fourth century um Jonathan Edwards would see it the other way he would see th- these are categories that they don't talk in terms of those those categories are really introduced by uh, the great German historian uh Adolf von Harnack who talks about the Hellenization of Christianity and that Christianity really lost its raison d'etre once it stepped out of the Jewish soil and was now in a, a Greco-Roman world um but I think Pelican and Florowski um, Pelican gets the idea from Florowski I first came across it in Pelican, and then you, it was you who told me that Frosky um, had um, made the same sort of comment, and obviously had to predate Pelican. Um, I think I think they're I think they're a more accurate understanding. Um, by the by, the end of the fourth century, uh, Christianity is the not only a legal religion in the Roman Empire; it's the only legal religion. There, there are no other religious options. Um, the 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 uh, Theodosius the Great passes the edicts in 382-383 that basically make any other religious option impossible. And Christianity now becomes the persecutor. And um, there's no way in which, I mean, the, 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 there is now, it, it, you're basically, you, you're, you've got the setting for the, the Middle Ages, which is a world of, yeah, to some degree, syncretism, but it's a it's a world in which Christianity, its worldview, um, in its basic realities, is is the dominant kind of zeitgeist of the period. Yeah. So as we wrap up this episode, um, I was wondering if you could speak to some of the um, positive reflections that we can take away from um, the, this Constantinian revolution that we've been talking about. And then also, uh, what are some of the negative reflections that you you think that Christians can take away from uh, when considering this aspect and this period of church history? Yeah, I think positively, uh, a number of things are important here. One is that um, uh, it was Christian prayers. I mean, how did Constantine become the emperor? Well, yeah, there's a political, you know, his father is the Augustus of the West, etc., etc. Um but behind it do stand uh, centuries of Christian longing and Christian prayers for um, release from persecution. And so I think uh, you, you could look at it from a spiritual standpoint, a pietistic standpoint, and say that this does speak to the, the, the importance of Christian praying. 
Um, monasticism emerges in this period as the answer to the identity problem. Um, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, in the period, the period before Constantine, it's to be part of a church structure, a community, where there are martyrs. Well, there are no more martyrs after the, the empire has embraced Christianity, at least basically so. I mean, you do have an example like Eusebius of Samosata, who is killed in 380 by an Aryan woman who throws a tile at his head and kills him. Um, and he's regarded by the defenders of the Nicene Creed against Arianism as a martyr. But essentially, you don't have martyrs in the way that you had them prior to Constantine. Um, and so, but what, what's the answer to that? Well, it's the monk. The monk demonstrates for us, or the nun, the word is not used in this period, but is an early medieval term, but the, a, a man or woman devoting themselves to celibacy and to a life of simplicity and obedience to a spiritual director um, known as an abba or an abbess, uh, you know, an abbot or an abbess. Um, that sort of lifestyle is what you, this, this becomes the, the the spirit uh, well in fact in the terms in the middle ages um it these these people are called the spirituality of the church which i think tells you very clearly that the cutting edge of christianity is the monastic movement um what does it mean to be a christian well it means to be part of a community where we have such men and women who demonstrate for us what it means to be a christian uh they've given all given up all to follow christ and so the the monk um, is a product of the Constantinian Revolution. Well, because of Constantinian Revolution permeates every every level of society, and people now begin to flood into the church because the only way to get ahead in society is to be a Christian, at least professing Christian, then it raises, as I say, this identity crisis. And the answer of the church is, is monasticism. And monasticism is very, very important for the long-term health of the church um, because it's the monks who preserve the scriptures. It's the monks who preserve all the literature of the early church. We wouldn't have virtually any of it if it had not been for the monks. Um, when the empire falls in the West into kingdoms of barbarism, quote unquote, in which the written word um, ceases to be something that is read readily, um, et cetera, et cetera. People cease to have books. Um, all the elements of urban culture and civilization uh, are plunged beneath a period of um, cultural darkness, if you want to use those phrases. I hesitate to use that word to some degree uh, there, because the entire period is not a dark ages, contrary to popular perception. You have the Carolingian Renaissance. Uh, you have the rebirth of universities in the 1100s and the banking system in places like uh, Siena and Northern Italy. But uh, there are periods of deep spiritual and cultural darkness, the Viking Age, 950 to 1050 or 1100. Um, or 850, sorry, to 950. Um, but uh, it's all through this, the, the, the monasteries preserve the scriptures. We wouldn't have the scriptures if it was not for the monasteries, these monastic sodalities or communities. And so that, you know, that, that's a blessing, despite the fact that the monastery becomes a problem. Um, by, the, by the late 13, 1400s, monastic uh, uh, um, uh, institutions are massive power structures, enormously wealthy. And um, they are hindrances to reform. Uh, the, very, the very vehicles that had been uh, part of a renewal movement in the 4th and 5th and 6th and 7th centuries now become hindrances to reform. And usually the, the stiffest 
opposition to the Reformation. Um, but that's not the way they begin. And so that's a positive thing. Um, the, the development of the, of the monastic movement. Negatively, uh, it now becomes a problem. You now have cultural Christianity. Basil of Caesarea said, you know, before, before it was very obvious when the devil attacked us because he did so through pagans who denied, denied Christianity. Now, seeing that that way of attack failed, he says, uh, the devil changed his tactics. And he now attacks us through men who are claimed to be Christians. That we might, that we might not suffer, seem to be, seem to be suffering for Christ because our, our opponents are themselves professing Christ. Um, you get Christians, and it, it, you get hints of it in the late antiquity, uh, the the execution of Priscillian of Avila, uh, who, for heresy, and um, I'll be honest, I, I have a fascination to some degree with Priscillian of Avila, and um, numerous accusations are made against him in terms of his theological convictions, and he's put on trial and executed by civil authorities, even though certain Monastic figures like Martin of Tours protested. The murder of Hypatia in the Agora in Alexandria, this pagan Greek philosophical figure, in her late 60s, torn apart by monks. They grabbed her, stripped her naked, scraped off her skin with she shells, we're told, and then tore her arms and legs out of their sockets. By monks coming out of the Egyptian desert. I mean, it's horrifying, but it's it's a prelude to the intolerance of the Middle Ages, um, where alongside you, you have periods of brightness like the Carolingian Renaissance, the, the Renaissance in Northern Italy, you have periods of just extreme brutality and intolerance. And all of it done in the name of Jesus Christ and God. And the Constantinian Revolution, therefore, yokes together church and state so that the church become the state the state becomes the arm of of orthodoxy to enforce religious religious orthodoxy and men and women are are executed for heresy and i think i think rightly when when this happens in geneva of all places when michael savitas is burned at the stake for his unitarianism um and a number of powers that be rather leaders that be in that period, like Melanchthon, right to Calvin, congratulating him. Uh, a very, I think, a prescient figure in, in, in Geneva, even though I, don't, I wouldn't agree with elements of his theology. Uh, Sebastian Castellio basically told Calvin, you, you've, you've not killed it. You, you've not destroyed a heresy. You've killed a human being. And um, the execution of Anabaptists. Uh, it's no wonder the Baptist movement both the Anabaptist movement and the Anabaptist movement, at the heart of them are the, is this reaction against this um, this version of uh, state church union um, in which um, the church has taken over the state and dominate dominating the state um, and uses the state to enforce what it understands to be orthodoxy. Um, and uh, in the long run it leads to the religious wars of the Thirty Years War the French Wars of Religion from 1562 to 1598 the English Civil War um, during uh, from 1638 to 1651 
And all of this has a backlash in the Enlightenment. And part of what's driving the Enlightenment uh, to some degree is the failure of, of, of uh, public Christianity. Um, if, this is th- if this is what Christianity is about, we want no part of it. The intolerance and the, the killing of other human beings in the name of God. And it, it certainly doesn't look like the early church, you know, from the, in the anti-Nicene period. And all of that's a fruit of the Constantinian Revolution. And so we, we need to be, I think, in our day, when there is significant questions raised about the liberal democracy, which is a product of the Enlightenment, whether or not this is any feasible in our day uh, to have such a plurality in the public square and whether or not uh, we, can, we can organize society on that basis it raises, from my mind, the question, well, what are the alternatives? Uh, we've already seen uh, the alternatives, one alternative, which is a, a Christian state, um, and it was Lord Acton who rightly said of the Catholic Church, and he was a Catholic, uh, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And um, for Christians to wield political power, um, we want Christians involved in the public square. Of course we do. And we want their voice to be heard, and we want that freedom. But it's it's dangerous. And anybody who doesn't think it's dangerous is naive, naive at best and um, well, I won't say what at worst, but uh, uh, just fail, fails to understand the lessons of, of history. Um, and uh, these, these are difficult questions. And we have, we have the history of the church to help us. And um, we would do wise to, to listen to how things have turned out with the, after the Constantinian Revolution, for example, in this one area. Uh, to help guide us in terms of thinking about political theology. Beat is co-hosted by Caleb Anthony Neal and is produced in partnership with the Andrew Fuller Center for Baptist Studies, an historical research center at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary that seeks to promote the study of Baptist history and theological reflections on its contemporary significance. For more by Dr. Haken, follow him on his substack at Historia Ecclesiastica. Links are in the description. We'll see you next time on Bede.